excuse. So I'm, I've got a little, I'm kind of fighting off something, a uh, uh, little dry throat. So uh, can you hand me my water, Esther? <coughs> so I'm um, pardon that. I'm probably going to kind of cough in your ear a couple of times here. But, um, you know, getting into our theme today, um, I don't know if you guys have met this one. He's, he's a mean one, Mr. Grinch. Um, and I think you guys know how he feels about Christmas, right? Uh, it's kind of like a combination of bah humbug and stay off my lawn. Uh, this is, that's the Grinch's attitude towards Christmas. And, but man, talk about someone who doesn't belong, right? Talk about someone who is outcast, someone who's isolated and alone. Uh, and part of the reason that this guy is alone is that, if you know the story, he pretty much rejected the core identity of everyone in Whoville. You guys know this story, right? Everyone's seen this movie or read the book. And, you know, in Whoville, the, really the core of their identity is that they love Christmas. And this guy hates Christmas. And actually, we watched this movie. We actually watched two versions of this movie again this year. We watched the Jim Carrey one, which is hilarious, um, but unfortunately, just due to un- other unrelated circumstances, I fell asleep, and I can't remember exactly how it was resolved, but I, but I think he was really against Christmas, and then something happened. We'll see. We'll see about that. And then we watched the, the more recent animated movie. I love the old 1960-whatever movie, but we watched the recent animated movie, and we, we were all just kind of struck, uh, Esther was very vocal about this, we were struck how Dr. Seuss, and definitely the movies that are based on his book, how they really portray so accurately the human experience. And I think in some ways, Dr. Seuss was really onto something when, when he came up with this guy, because he does, he does really um, illustrate to us often, maybe in an exaggerated way, how we feel sometimes. Don't you think? You know, he feels isolated, he feels alone. He feels judged. He feels ashamed. Uh, he gets really angry and self, self-interested, self-centered. He doesn't care about anyone else but himself. Can we all relate to having at least moments like that? And, and you know, I think, I think if we're being really honest, and, if, you know, especially after our series on Romans and we learned how sinful our own hearts are, uh, it's only a mild exaggeration, isn't it? Yeah, we don't turn green and we're not hairy, but I think, I think we can relate really well to, to this Grinch. And, you know, in Dr. Seuss's book, the problem all starts in this cute little town of Whoville where everyone's happy and everything's perfect at Christmas time. But, guys, for us, the story starts actually in this cute little garden where everything really is perfect. And you guys know the story of Adam and Eve and how in Genesis God makes them, he makes them perfectly, he has them in perfect relationship. And, and you know, uh, they don't even... They don't even uh, have to go far to encounter the Lord. He walks with them in the cool of the day in the garden, right? There's this perfect sense of belonging. And there's a perfect sense that, that not only do they belong to God, but they belong to each other. Adam and Eve don't even wear clothes. They don't even wear clothes because they have no shame in front of one another. And they're perfectly connected. And there's no judgment. And there's no sense of separation between them. And not only that, they live in perfect harmony with the world, they belong in the garden such that the animals come to them and they even name them. Adam's naming these animals that just walk up to him. The Lord brings them by. And they're free to eat whatever it is except for one tree, right? 
There's just one tree they can't eat, this tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And what God is saying by putting that tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he's like, trust me to be your guide in good and evil. Don't trust yourself. And if you do that, we're going to have perfect harmony, and and you're going to belong perfectly. I don't know if you guys have heard this story. It's slightly less famous than How the Grinch Stole Christmas. Uh, But Adam and Eve fail this test, right? They fail. And ultimately what they're doing, and sometimes we don't think about it this way, you know, the serpent comes and tempts Eve, and she eats the fruit, and then she hands the fruit to Adam, and he eats it as well, is that Adam and Eve essentially are rejecting God. They're rejecting his plan. They're rejecting his promise. They're rejecting everything about him, you know, being enough for them. And so God rejects them. In this image we have, uh, Benjamin West painted this painting. We have the angel that's casting them out of Eden. Angel that's casting them out of this perfect place. No longer do they belong. They don't belong in Eden. They don't belong with God. They don't even belong with each other because now they have to cover themselves and hide their shame from one another. And the reality is, that's what we've been living in since that moment. From that moment to this, we have lived in this place of isolation. We've lived in this place of loneliness. We've lived in this place of shame, this self-centeredness, this rejection. And you know what the Bible calls that? The Bible calls that death. God says, if you eat of this fruit, you will surely die. Death is separation. That's what it is. Death is every kind of separation. We think of it mostly the separation of our body from our spirit. Right? We leave this this mortal plane, this physical realm. But it's also the separation of us from God. It's the separation of us from one another. It's the separation of us from the world that God created, designed perfectly for us to inhabit, and yet we don't even belong in our own home anymore. Do you ever feel like that? Do you ever feel like you don't even belong in your own home? I think we've all experienced that at some point. But see, the thing is, we rejected God, and then God rejected us. It's true. We don't like to think about it. You know, and, you know, God's all loving, so how could he do it? He did it. He cast them out. He cast us out. But, you know, the thing is, we actually see from the very beginning of that moment forward, God has this desire to reconnect. God has this desire to to bring us back into relationship. And I'm just going to pull up some verses for a few of these, but they're all over the Old Testament. You know, for example, uh, when God looks at the human race and he says, oh my goodness, they've gone too far. This is too much. I'm going to kill them. I'm going to bring a flood and I'm going to kill them and this experiment will be over. But then he says, but wait, I'm going to save one family because I'm not done yet. Yeah, I cast them out of the garden. Yeah, there's just an overflow of evil but I'm going to save one family and see if we can do this again. Now, of course, God sees all things, so he's not really questioning like that. But you kind of, you understand the idea. And so he saves Noah and his family. And then Noah has these three sons, and two of them really go their own way, and one of them stays closer to God. And through that one, God says through Sam, he's like, I'm going to 
to keep this project going. And he promises never to flood the earth again because he's committed to humanity. He's committed. He's got this desire to make this work. So he calls Abraham. You guys know the story of Abraham? He's living with his father in Ur of the Chaldeans. And God calls him to leave Ur and to follow him to a new place. And, you know, in most of our Bibles it says, The Lord said to Abram, and I put up there that YHWH for Yahweh, just to illustrate this is the personal named God of Israel who calls Abram. Yahweh said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. And so Abram is being invited to step out of the place where he probably feels like he belongs the most on the promise that God will bring him into something where he'll belong more. He has to leave his family behind. And of course, Abraham is called into the promised land and and we read in the book of Hebrews that he died before he was able to take hold of that promise, right? So death swallowed up Abraham before the promise was fulfilled. You see that Death keeps getting in the way. But Abraham is told, you're going to have a son. But he's old, and his wife is barren, and so they can't get pregnant. So his wife says, you know, why don't you take my servant, take my slave, Hagar, and why don't you sleep with her and have a son? That way we can fulfill the promise of God. But Abraham agrees He does it, and then surprisingly, Sarah's not too happy with the results because her servant now, she thinks, is above her because she has borne a son to her husband. So Sarah casts Hagar out into the wilderness. But God doesn't leave her in the wilderness. God finds her in the wilderness. It says, The angel of Yahweh found Hagar near a spring in the desert. It was the spring that is beside the road to Shur. And he said, Hagar, slave of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? Does God know where she came from? Does God know where she's going? By the way, why is she out in the wilderness? To die. She's gone out there to die. But God doesn't leave her out there to die. He calls her back. And he sends her back to Abraham and Sarah. And then he reminds Abraham and Sarah, look, I'm going to give you this promise, but don't cast out this woman. He protects her. He brings her back into belonging. But you know what happens with, with Hagar? And you know what happens with her son Ishmael? They die. Abraham dies. Sarah dies. None of them actually fully received the promise. Death still reigns. But Abraham has a son Isaac. And Isaac has a son, Jacob. Jacob's out in the wilderness. Jacob's wondering if he's going to die in the wilderness. And then God meets him there. Jacob's out in the wilderness because he's going back home and he's going to run into his brother, the one that he cheated out of his inheritance and cheated out of his blessing. And he's been away for decades and he started his own family. And uh, he very uh, intelligently accidentally married the wrong woman. And then he had to marry her sister as well. And then he had children with the two of them and their two servants. So he's got this nice big brood of boys. And four, two wives, two concubines. 
and he sends them all ahead of him. Think about this for a moment. He's afraid that his brother Esau is going to kill him, so he sends his wives and children first. It's kind of a cowardly move, isn't it? Don't you think he should have held them back and he should have gone first? He sends them first. He's out in the wilderness. He's afraid he's going to die, just like Hagar. And God comes to him, and he wrestles with him. And he says, what is your name? He says, my name is Jacob. He says, you will no longer be Jacob. Jacob means deceiver. Jacob means trickster. Jacob means uh, a mean one, Mr. Grinch. He says, now you will be Israel because you have struggled with God and with humans and have overcome. And Israel means the one who struggles. The one who struggles. What a different reality for Jacob because God meets him in the wilderness. But you know what happens to Jacob? He dies. And you know where he dies? He dies in Egypt. Now Jacob, for all his scumbaggery, He's a man of faith. You know what he asks his children to do with his bones? Take him back to the promised land. His son Joseph is out in the wilderness because his brothers trapped him in a pit and sold him into slavery and he went from slavery to prison and God met Joseph in that prison and gave him interpretation of a dream. A dream of these cupbearer and a, and, a, and a waiter, essentially. But they still forget about him after they're restored, the cupbearer restored. But then when Pharaoh has a dream, God meets Joseph again and gives him the interpretation of Pharaoh's dream, and he's risen up to a high place in Egypt. But you know what happens to Joseph? Joseph dies. And all of Israel is held captive as slaves in Egypt for 400 years. And there's this little boy born named Moses who's supposed to die, but he's saved by being put in a basket and set out into the river. And the Pharaoh's daughter finds him and raises him to be a high figure in the court. But he knows who he is because his mother was enlisted to help raise him. His family told him who he was, that he was an Israelite. And so when he sees an Egyptian uh, harassing an Israelite slave, he kills that Egyptian because he thinks, I'm going to free my people. I'm going to help my people get out of slavery. But he does it his own way instead of God's way. And so he is exiled. He no longer belongs. Do you see a theme here? And where do you think God finds him? In the wilderness. God finds Moses in the wilderness. It says, Yahweh saw there's this burning bush, but it's not burning up. Moses is curious. He goes to find out. Yahweh saw that Moses had gone over to look, and God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. Again, God calls him by name. He's initiating a relationship. All of these moments where God intervenes, he's calling people back into belonging. But what happens to Moses? Right before they enter the promised land, Moses dies. And by the way, Moses dies before he enters the promised land. 
because he was disobedient to God. So God rejected him as the one who could bring the people into the promised land. But God's with Joshua. Joshua helps the people take the promised land. Joshua dies. These enemies from around the promised land come and they harass and badger the Israelites for hundreds of years. And God brings all these judges and the judges all die. So God brings in Saul. Saul's the new king of Israel. He's not really the right guy for the job, is he? He dies. He brings in David. David, a man after God's own heart. David, the one who is the forerunner of Christ. David, the one who seems like he unites, uh, he, he helps to finish the conquering of the land. He brings peace to the people. He, he kind of like figures most of this stuff out. <coughs> not all of it. Not all of it right. But he does a lot of it right. And even when he does it wrong, he repents. And he's restored to God. And how long does this last? One generation. One generation after David, his son Solomon. And after Solomon, everything falls apart. The kingdom's divided. And the people repeatedly, whether it's in the wilderness with Moses, whether it's in the promised land under the judges, whether it's under King David and King Solomon and their, children, their sons, over and over and over, Israel rejects God. And so finally God says, I reject you. And he exiles them out of the land. They lose their home. They no longer belong. And they die. And they die. And they die. Death is separation. Separation from God. Separation from one another. Separation from your home. And separation finally from yourself in physical death. Any wonder why we feel lonely sometimes? Any wonder why we feel like we don't belong? Any wonder why we feel isolated? Now here's the thing about God, though. <coughs> uh, well, here's the thing about you and me. You and I, we have all sorts of desires, right, that don't come true. When God desires something, it comes true. So God had been planning from before the foundation of the world to bring in a solution to the problem and the fulfillment of his desire. And if you think about it, the way God solved the problem of our rejection, of our death, of our abandonment is Christmas. God said, all right, I've tried for hundreds and now thousands of years to bring them back to me, and it doesn't work because they keep dying, and they keep rejecting me, and they keep turning away, and I keep calling out to them, and it keeps falling short. So if they can't come to me, I'm going to go to them. If they can't be restored back to heaven, then I'm going to bring heaven down to earth. And Christmas, Advent, the birth of Jesus Christ, is God's solution to this problem of our death, of our, of our 
rejection of our exile because he loved us so much that he wasn't going to leave us where he found us. So God became like us so that we could be drawn back into relationship with him. You know, we see this in a bunch of verses. Uh, I think last week, uh, Sonia uh, talked about this verse from John 1, 14. Did you talk about this? Maybe you didn't. It's all in my head. It says, The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. This word that it's describing just a few verses earlier is the same word who was with God and who was God, who was with God in the beginning. All things that have been made have been made through the word. This is God himself taking on human flesh to become fully human. It doesn't say that he pretended to wear a flesh costume. I was talking, um, I think it was with Sarah the other day, you know, in, in um, uh, Hinduism, there's all these gods, right? And in Hinduism, there's stories where these gods come to earth as human beings, but they're not actual human beings. They're called avatars. And so if you're familiar with Avatar, either the movie or avatars in social media and things like that, that's where this comes from. An avatar is kind of a shell of a human being that a god can kind of enter in and manipulate to pretend to be human. Now, I don't know if you're familiar with this, but India is a rather hot place, but avatars don't sweat. They don't smell. They don't have bodily functions. They're not real human beings. And then you've got the Greek gods. The Greek gods can show up on earth, and they can look, they look like people, right? but they're not really human beings either. And they just come down to mess with people and to get what they want and leave. They're not... They're not intimately involved with humanity. Uh, in, in Greek mythology, if, in Roman mythology, if the God shows up, you actually want to be careful, watch out. You don't want the gods to notice you. The more the gods notice you, the more difficult your life becomes. It's only in Christianity that God actually becomes human. That God actually wants to live with us and be in relationship with us on a continuing basis. The God of Christianity wants to belong to us and he wants us to belong to him. So Jesus becomes fully human and he doesn't just become human and then kind of lord it over us. That's the, that's the Egyptian gods. The Egyptian gods have human form in the pharaohs, but then they lord it over everyone and they subject the people to their wishes. But Jesus comes in order to save us. He comes to serve us. He comes to submit himself, in a sense, to our needs. In Hebrews chapter 2, it says, Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. Again, the Egyptian gods keep the people in slavery. Our God frees us from slavery. And if you read that passage further in Hebrews 2, it says that Jesus uh, becomes like us so that he can call us brothers and sisters. Jesus doesn't come that we can serve him, he comes, that he can serve us. 
This is so different from every other religion. It's so different from every other paradigm out there. And again, Jesus doesn't just take on the form of a human being. He does that. But in Philippians 2, we read, Christ, who being in very nature God, made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant. Being made in human likeness, he humbled himself to becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. So God just doesn't just give up his rights. This Philippians talks about uh, he, didn't, uh, he didn't consider uh, his you know, grasping on to his rights as God, but he let go of those to become human. He doesn't just become human. He becomes a human who serves. But he doesn't just serve. He serves to the point of death. And so what God does, this is amazing, is that God identifies with us so fully that he even takes on the name dead for us. If we die, then he will die. If we're under the curse of death, then he comes under the curse of death. Because all the ways that God sought to, to bring us back into relationship and to restore us and to help us belong and to, and to reconcile us to him, none of it worked until he was willing to fully step into our reality and become like us in every way. And again, that's what Christmas is about. It's that moment in history where God says, all right, I am all in on you guys. I'm all in on you. I'm all in on you. I'm all in on you. And I'm going to do whatever it takes to bring you back. But of course, Jesus doesn't stay dead, right? Jesus goes on the cross he gives his life for you and me. But he doesn't stay dead because he's God. <coughs> Death was always the thing that ended the, the experiment before. All right? Abraham dies in the wilderness. Hagar dies in the wilderness. <coughs> Jacob dies in the wilderness. All of us, whether the physical wilderness, the relational wilderness, the, you know, whatever it is that we encounter, we we all face death in the wilderness. But God comes into the wilderness. He dies. He doesn't stay dead. And that's the hope we have in Advent. That's the hope of Christmas. Is that this God who was born and came alive as a human stays alive as a human even when he's killed. And so now there's this outcome that we never could have even hoped for before. And the outcome is this, that God became like us so that we could become like him. You remember this verse from Romans eight twenty nine, The verse before, God says, uh, all things work together for good of those who love me and are called according to God's purposes. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed into the image of his son. Meaning that Jesus becomes human, Christ becomes human, so that you can become Christ. It's actually the same language that's used in Philippians 2. Jesus takes on the very image of humanity, and now we become the image of Christ. We're conformed into the image of Christ. This is powerful stuff. So in a sense, when Jesus was born in that manger, 
When Jesus took on human flesh, he did it so that human flesh could, in a sense, take on deity. Now, I'm not talking about, I think it's the, the Mormon a religion that says that we're all gods, that we're all going to end up creating our own worlds, that we, you know, we're going to be like Jesus fully and completely in every possible way. And when we die and, and uh, pass through this world, then we become gods ourselves. That's not what I mean. <clears throat> I mean that in our character and our identity in terms of our relationship with the Father, in terms of our love, how we're loved and how we belong, we become fully like Christ. I know you read last week from John uh, 14, 15, 16, but Jesus, in that passage, he says, uh, he says, Father, may the love you have for me also be on them. The same way you love me, Lord, love them. That the Father, when he looks at you, he doesn't see you anymore because you're clothed in Christ. Right? You've taken on the form of Jesus. So that when the Father sees you, he doesn't see a person who's rejected He doesn't see a person who has turned against him and has sinned against him. He doesn't see a person who's destined to die. He sees his son, Jesus Christ, who has lived a righteous and holy life, who has fully submitted to the Father, who has fully honored the Father, who has fully lived for the Father, who has has received the Father and been received by the Father completely in perfect relationship with no separation. Kind of like we imagine Adam and Eve being in the garden they didn't even have to wear clothes in front of each other because there was no shame. This is the promise of Christmas. In fact, Paul goes on to say in that same chapter that not even death at this point can separate us from the love of God. All those Old Testament figures, they died and they never received the promise. But because of Jesus Christ, when we die, we still receive the promise. Because neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor demons, nor the present, nor the future, nor any powers, neither height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is impossible. How can it be? But it's not just that we become like Christ and that God loves us. Because there's this other little piece going on too. Is that we are called then to do the things that Jesus does and that Jesus did. I think I missed one. Uh, In 2 Corinthians 5. Do we have 2 Corinthians 5, Astra? No. In 2 Corinthians 5... We read that God reconciled us through Jesus Christ and then that he gave us the ministry of reconciliation. So here you are, cast out from God's presence, rejected, isolated alone. Jesus comes to pull you back into what? A family. To give you a new home. Right? Jesus says, I go to prepare a place for you. He gives you a new home. And he gives you this home in this community, like this one. And he gives you a home in his presence. Jesus abides in you, and you abide in him. You belong again. You don't have to feel ashamed anymore, because Jesus has taken your shame. You don't have to feel guilt anymore, because Jesus has taken your sin. 
You don't have to feel alone anymore because Jesus lives within you and his Holy Spirit is with you constantly. And so what does God say to do with that? Go share it with others. You know, we sing, let every heart prepare him room. You know, in the, in the carol. And I think about, you know, how room was prepared for Jesus for his arrival. But one of the ways that we prepare room in our heart for Jesus is by making room in our heart for others and making room in our lives for others. Jesus tells us to, to love one another. And then he tells us to love your neighbors as yourself. And then he goes on to tell us to love your enemies. Like, who's not on the list? Everybody makes the list. Who gets to belong to the people of God? Everybody. Everybody gets to belong. There's no one who's not invited. You know the story of the, of the lamb, I mean, of the, of the supper of the bridegroom, and he calls out to his friends and his family, he says, come, I've got, I'm throwing a party. Come join me, come celebrate. Be like, oh, I'm busy. Oh, I got this thing going on. Oh, I can't come right now. And Jesus says, all right, go out in the streets and invite all the, the beggars and the poor and the homeless. Invite all the people who don't have friends, you know, the, the outcasts and the losers. Invite all the people who, who don't get invited to parties, you know, the, the, the social, the bottom rung of the social ladder. Invite those people. Uh, you know what? Uh, and if you remember high school, invite the, the band dorks and invite the, the, the glee club and invite the, 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 the math nerds and just bring them all in. Bring them all to the party. And anyone who's willing to come gets accepted to the party. Anyone who's willing to come gets to belong. This is the beautiful thing about Christmas is that Jesus didn't become, he didn't just become a certain kind of person, if you know what I mean. He didn't just come for one group. He, did, he didn't just come for the Jews. He didn't just come for the cool. He didn't just come for the smart. He didn't just come for the wealthy. He was born to peasants in a barn in the backwaters of a dominated province of Rome to signify that he was coming for everyone. And so then we get to be the same as Jesus. You know what Christian means, right? A little Christ. You and I, we're called to be little Jesuses walking around on this earth. Making our dwelling among those in the world, just like Jesus did. In John 1, 14, he made his dwelling among us, and so now we make our dwelling among others. We've been given a ministry of reconciliation, not reconciling people to ourselves, but reconciling people to God through Jesus Christ. And part of the way that we do that is we show simple acts of belonging to people. Now, what word do we use to describe simple acts of belonging? Hospitality. Above all, this is 1 Peter 4, above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. That's quite an understatement, isn't it? Love covers over all the sins. 
and offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. You guys, what a great season to be offering hospitality to one another. It's a wonderful time. And what I mean by that is, literally, make room in your home for each other. Make room in your home for others. Make space in your life for people to show up and have, uh, to be received there. Act out the reality of others belonging with you just as God has acted out your belonging with him. Now, I know this is kind of a crazy time of year, too. There's a lot going on. You might be thinking, well, I can't do this right now. And by the way, you don't know about my circumstances, and you don't know what's going on for me, and you don't know the dynamics of my situation right now. And what I say to this is, sure, I don't. The Lord does, and he'll lead you. But the dynamics of every one of our situation is that we had no hope to belong, and that God made space for us. And he says, the way you re- accept that gift is by offering it to others. It's the craziest kind of Christmas present there is. The only way to accept the gifts of Christmas is to give them to others. But sometimes we want to hoard those gifts. Sometimes we want all the gifts for ourselves, kind of like the Grinch did in the movie, really. You know what happened in the movie or in the book or in, you know, is that the Grinch goes and he takes everyone's gifts for himself. More out of spite than anything else. Uh, and it's interesting, in the different movies, there's kind of a different origin story for the Grinch, but he's always an orphan. He doesn't belong. He's lost his home. And he goes and he takes all their gifts because he thinks the reason they're happy is because they're just greedy people who are happy to get gifts. That's the real reason those Whovillians are happy at Christmas. The Who's don't really have love and joy and kindness and grace and acceptance. They really just are greedy people wanting presents. So I'll take all their presents for myself. And then what happens when he takes all their presents? What do the Who's do? Do they grumble and complain? They celebrate anyway. Because they're not really there to celebrate the physical gifts. They're celebrating, really, the gift of belonging. And, of course, it's not overtly Christian, but, my goodness, doesn't it parallel the story of the gospel? And so there's the Grinch, and he's stolen all their gifts, and he begins to hear a song. I want to just play a portion of that for you. And I want you to notice the role of welcome home and the changing of the Grinch's heart.
You have to watch the movie to see the rest. <laughs> welcome home, welcome home, welcome home. But don't they know what I've done? Man, isn't that our story? God, don't you know what I've done? Don't you know that I don't belong here? Don't you know that I can't be forgiven? And yet the song is sung and the music plays. Welcome home, welcome home, welcome home. This is the call of Christmas. God was singing out that night with the angels as they praised the Lord to the shepherds. They say, we come with tidings of great joy. A Savior has been born in the town of Bethlehem. Go and see. Welcome home. That Simeon and Anna are in the temple and the baby Jesus is brought and they say, and Simeon says to the Lord, I can rest in peace because I've seen the fulfillment of the promise that the Messiah has come. God's crying out to Simeon, welcome home. And Jesus is born and raised and grows up and he goes to those disciples and he says, you, you, follow me. You, follow me. You, follow me. Welcome home. And the Spirit of Christ calls out to your heart in the moment of your salvation. And you object and you protest and you say, but don't you know what I've done? And God says, I know what you've done. Welcome home. Welcome home. Welcome home. Church, this Advent, be welcomed home. You belong. Your isolation is over. Your rejection is overturned. Your shame is annulled and your guilt is erased. You belong. Let's pray. Well, we all, we all come this morning wondering. I think there's a part of us that wonders, Lord, are we really accepted? Do we really belong? And our fear is that in the end, we're going to find out that we were mistaken and we, we do not. The gospel is great news for somebody else. But I'm not sure it is for me. But Lord, let this be a reminder to us that the story is true not only for others, but for ourselves. And that when we receive that gift of belonging, Lord, that then we would be so willing to share, to give it away to others, just like, I'll give away the story, just like the Grinch does at the end. He gives all the gifts. He ends up being the one who gives all the gifts to everyone in Whoville. How beautiful. God, that a sinner like me could be the one giving gifts to others. God, that rejects like the ones in this room could be the ones giving acceptance and belonging to somebody else. God, how beautiful it is those of us who've lived in the wilderness have been called out and given a home. 
God, how amazingly surprising and delightful to learn that those of us who've been covering up so much our whole lives with fig leaves or more sophisticated clothing, that we can actually be seen for who we are and still wanted and still loved. us so much that you are willing to step out of the glory of heaven into a dirty stall in the backwater of an oppressed province of Rome to peasants who weren't even married to enter into all the shame the mockery and the scorn to amplify that by serving all of us to the point of death on the cross. All so that you could prepare a place for us. All so that you could belong to us and that we could belong to you once again. Because you were not content to leave us where we were. You were not content or satisfied to watch us die in the wilderness. Instead, you called us to a banquet where life abounds. And we're fed to the fullest. Where all the desires of our heart become yes in Jesus Christ. I'm just going to invite you to sit in that for a moment.